I'm Elizabeth Chopin, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology UK. In this episode of the Design Dialogues, I'm talking with Tom Bartlett, co-founder of Waldo Works, a London-based interior design and architecture studio known for high-end commercial and residential projects infused with irreverence, rebellion, and wit. Tom? Hey. <laughs> How are you? I'm okay. I'm good, actually. It's all uh, seems to be returning to normal a bit, except I'm sitting in my house. So. Yeah, I was going to ask. It looks like you're sitting at home. Have you yeah. been working in the studio most of this year? Well, we've been a bit back and forth. I'm sort of going in about three days a week. It's been strange how people don't really, I don't know, they, they want the flexibility, I think. Yeah. So you're not going to enforce your studio to be in a certain amount of time? No, I think the amount of drawing that we do, in fact, having some days where you're not disturbed is, is quite nice. But then, you know, obviously concept design and all that sort of stuff, you need to be in the room together. It seems to be working, actually. It sort of shows that I'm a bit of a Luddite in terms of sort of getting quite old. You know, I think I've realised that it's actually, it's not really about time, it's about task, I think. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. my new mantra, at least. <laughs> You're going to get some t-shirts made with it. Yeah, no, yeah, make them all wear them and then come to the office. Okay, so Tom, let's go back to the start. You grew up in London, didn't you? Yeah, I grew up in London. I grew up in Notting Hill Mm -hmm. before it became what it is now, on the Portobello Road, really, which was a very different place. In some ways, it was kind of, well, maybe I'm biased, but it was the sort of cultural centre of London at the time and felt like a lot was going on. And do you think that when you were growing up, you had a creative career on your radar. You know, what led you to this point? I grew up in a kind of house my parents had bought for nothing, as those stories are of old London. And my mother worked at a shop called Bieber with my sister's godmother, Barbara Houdinicki. And when Bieber closed, all the a lot of the furniture from there arrived Amazing. in our house in Oxford Gardens. So I grew up in quite a kind of, I mean, there are those awful words, aren't there, like bohemian or things like that. But my father is a rock and roll obsessive and my mother likes clothes and interiors. So yes, I suppose so. And my father is also, he's a builder and, a, and turned into a property developer. And so I was always around architecture and making things. So at what point did you decide to study it or that it was going to be, you know, your calling? Well, there's this awful moment in the, well, there used to be in the English educational system where you have to put something on an UCA form, it used to be called, which was your university application form. And I had a very privileged education. And I mean, it was absurd, really. But we had something called the drawing schools, which had these amazing departments, sculpture, ceramics, art, printmaking. And I spent about five years hanging out in there and realized I wanted to do something. I wasn't very good at painting. And I think architecture just appealed to me because it's something I, uh, I thought at the time I was going to be good at. That's age 16, but uh, little did I know. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was doing, to tell you the truth. It began with A, maybe it was at the top of the list. I don't know, you know, it didn't get very far on the list. You took an educated guess. Yeah, 
but it was very different to what I expected, I'm sure, at 16. Mm. And so then you went to university and studied? Yeah, I went to Manchester University, where I studied on a, it was a pretty kind of Bauhaus-based course for three years of architecture. I then went to go and work for a interior design practice called Baker Neville Design, which was a sort of incredible introduction to really interiors, I suppose, but interiors that had been thought about, I think, in an incredibly novel way. And that gave me a real grounding in how kind of serious and sort of well thought out spaces can be wonderful. And then I went to the Bartlett School of Architecture, which is uh, no relation, um, <laughs> at UCL, which is a kind of pretty theory-based. One of the best. Yeah, it's pretty great. I was in the unit with Nick Clear, and we were very, uh, I suppose it was the height of kind of Britpop and the YBAs and all of that. So, and we were very much immersed in that by him and sort of creating some quite sort of punky, quite fun sort of conceptual design. And then I went back to work at Baker Neville design. Well, you can definitely see the line through from that education into some of your projects now. It's been nearly 20 years since you founded Walderworks, right? Yeah. You have to update the website because it says 10. Oh, does it? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we're just in the process of doing that. Oh, God, the website. Um, no, I work with Justin and Christopher, and I got left a little bit of money by someone. And I found this warehouse, which I managed to buy for pittance, actually, at the time. Borrowed a lot of money, did it up. And the warehouse is called Waldo Works. Oh, that's where the name comes that's from. That's where I live. That's where I am now. Mm. So I, I built this thing and sort of sat in this empty space and thought I wanted to sort of live here for a bit. And so I set up my company, which was just me mm -hmm. at that point. What was your first project? Well, I was very lucky. I had brought in some projects when I was quite young to Baker Neville. And one of them was Jade Jagger, who was quite sort of famous at the time and still is, I suppose. I'd been asked by a friend of hers to look at her house in Ibiza, which we had done then. And then she was offered the uh, creative direction of a jewellery brand called Garrod, which was the crown jeweller at the time. And for some mad reason, they decided that I should be able to design the interior of their store, which was pretty nuts because I was 26 or something like that. And that was my first job. Amazing. Before we get into how you work, let's talk a bit about the type of projects you've done since that first one, because the list of clients is, is pretty long and impressive now. I mean, for the people that might not be as familiar with your work, you've done work with Selfridges and Wartsky, Fortnum & Mason, Smyson, Temperley, a bunch of hotels, and a lot of homes for a fair few kind of high profile people. What have been the career defining projects, you know, in those last two decades, if you had to pick sort of two or three, what were the moments where you thought this is what we're about? I think Wartsky for us has been a joyous thing to work on, which was, uh, we seem to specialize a bit in jewelry stores. And Wartsky is a store that had been set in a brutalist shop in Bruton Street, and they had to move. And I got this call from sort of a jewellery expert that basically had come off the Antiques Roadshow 
and thought, oh God, I'm going to be asked to do a Georgian <laughs> antique jewellery store and how do I politely say no? But I went to go meet them and there was this just incredible brief of like, we want to make a brutalist store and this is what our brand is. And the brand was just so, so expert and academic and wonderful that as I started presenting to them that they should have a you know, rilled concrete stall based on the golden section. Mm -hmm. And it was all an essay in geometry. Mm. And would they please allow me to not have any keys and make everything work, such and such. And I wanted to, you know, put a cut line down the front of the store and change all the materiality. They were so, so up for it and so adventurous. That store in some ways is a kind of conceit in some senses, because it's, um, you know, it's very much a sort of moment, a little jewellery box, really, of a kind of concept. But I think we just loved working with them and making something kind of quite small and sort of perfect. And to be allowed that kind of time was a great moment. I think in terms of houses, we've been working with some German clients for, I think it's about 15 years now, on various projects. And we just finished their house in Austria after, I think I went there first in 2014, in fact, it's not finished. There's the Stubi to go in, which is a little what is that? timber breakfast room. Uh, it's a little, you see them in sort of chalets and that's last to go in. We went to go and install it actually in that rare window where we could travel about three weeks ago and hang the pictures in the library that we've built. And uh, they're amazing because they, again, they allow you to spend time over detailing and concept and they've been so supportive so that's been nice i mean basically working with nice people is the ones yeah, that i remember it helps um yeah it really really helps but i mean this segues into what i would imagine your values as a studio are you definitely stand out in the luxury sector because there's sort of an intellectual rigor and a narrative in your projects which isn't always the case and like with selvridge's and wartsky it requires a real curiosity from you as designers. And I'm just wondering, you know, what your process is. How do you get inspired by a brief and where do you start? Well, I think we start very conceptually. I mean, I think the basis of what I'm interested in and I hopefully the studio are interested in is the idea of the future. I think we love looking at the past and we love looking at historic spaces and furniture and all of those things. But the reality is we want to make something that is progressive and that moves forward and that tries to say something new about something. And I think <laughs> that is really where we start. So we take a brief and we, I suppose we assemble a story around so we, we had this rather extraordinary commission by Selfridges on the fourth floor, which was, I don't know what it's called now. It had about five different names. I think it's called the International Lounges now. But it incorporated things like a faith room and, you know, where you get your tax return done, where you wait, mm -hmm. where you go if you've spent a lot of money, to recover. Where, you, uh, where you might go to the loo, mm -hmm. where you, you know, where you put your coat in, where you buy theatre tickets. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So you have to kind of look at that and assemble some sort of narrative and some sort of story about, and you're obviously set in that historic building. So I think we looked at all of those ideas and, and the idea of kind of travel. I think the space had been the Palm Court restaurant in the 1930s. And we wanted to sort of reinvent an architecture around that period of 1910. We looked at a lot of successionist design and 
tried to create a kind of travel-based... I suppose we were thinking about, I mean, we've had so many references, but thinking about kind of the glamour of sort of institutions and sort of like the idea of a sort of Hitchcock banking hall or something, the sort of process of going through these rather mundane ideas should be elevated to something that was incredibly sensual and polite and kind of rewarding for the people going through these things. So that's where we start. We decide, you know, that we have this kind of vision about how it can be better and how it can be better than what we expect. Mm, okay. And obviously that's a very different approach to how you would get to know a client, a residential, a private client, you know, what, what about those? Well, being with a private client is like being, um, I mean, I always slightly laugh because it's sort of like slightly like being a therapist. Yeah. You're sort of asking things like, so tell me, are you going to have children? Or <laughs> yeah. or you're sort of kind of like, what's your nighttime habits? Yeah. You know, what do you so you kind of have to go into this sort of speed dating yeah. sort of situation with And I imagine have to ask oh, what might seem like impertinent questions about what they get up to. Yeah. And it's sort of, you know, you pretty much end up knowing what's in their night drawer, you know. Yeah. And particularly with us. I mean, we're sort of measuring people's boots and Mm-hmm. When it works, it's a very, I mean, I think the whole thing about residential design is really about trust. It's about, you know, looking into a couple or a person's sort of eyes and sort of them them understanding that you're not trying to pull one over and, you, you know, your agenda is actually them rather than yourself. But at the same time, you know, as a design studio and, and trying to create a kind of language of design that is meaningful for you as well. But the interesting thing about Walderworks, I think, is that although there seems to be a philosophy, there's not kind of a signature style. I mean, the one thing that connects all the projects is how different they are, you know, how surprising they are. And I think it's interesting to think about the studio within the whole sector, because I remember years ago when I interviewed you for another magazine, you said something that struck me, which is, Luxury for luxury's sake is tasteless. And that, that sounds very grand to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were talking about the idea of bling and some of the luxury interiors that were prominent at the time. The idea of irony and humor and wit in interiors. And I think we were talking about the retail space you designed for PPQ and that was based on the Margaret Thatcher modernism concept and how the materials that were inspired by 1980s radiators and thatcher scarves and garden conservatories and stuff and it was really irreverent and cheeky and it raised questions about what good taste is but it was a really sort of exquisitely detailed luxury project at the same time and i wonder if that's one of the reasons clients come to you because of that tension i mean i have a problem with the idea of taste full stop because it has connotations that are exclusive it has a sort of class thing it has I, I've always struggled with it. It's like, why are you allowed to look down on someone because they've got a doll cover on their blue paper? I just, you know, it's not, it's, there's something dodgy about it. I think incorporating contrasts or playing with people's perception of what is good taste and what isn't good taste has always amused me in a slightly arch way because I'm interested in that idea of how people set themselves apart by saying, oh, they've got taste, they haven't got, you know, all that sort of thing. But I think wit is, yeah, I think that's a language that we try and look at. We want to be positive. We want to be colourful. We want to be forward-looking. And we want to be unstuffy, I suppose, is what does link our projects. It's interesting you say that about our projects looking so diverse. And I sometimes worry about that. I worry that our voice is perhaps not heard because it 
speaks quite a lot of different languages. It's very hard to look at your own work and understand whether there's a kind of synergy between it. But I think that reflects, you know, a more cerebral approach to design where you're looking for a story, you're citing influences in historical movements of design and architecture, or you're trying to kind of create a narrative that anchors the project and connects with the client or the environment. And I think, you know, that's what I mean by that. And there are other designers where there's a very successful sort of look that is reproduced. I don't think we've ever done that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that works for them and their clients. But I think there's this probably a specific type of person that when confronted with the idea of having their house done or a brand that wants to say something with their retail space and they think of Waldorworks, I think there's a reason for that. And it's not so much like, oh, I want something that looks like Waldorworks has done it. It's more, I want people to feel something when they come in. But that's just hazarding again. Well, I, that's lovely. You can write our, you can write our website <laughs> for it. I, I would hope that's what it is. I mean, you know, we work our clients pretty hard. We really, you know, my, my jokes about being a therapist is also, you know, we sit them down and we talk through it a lot. We want their input and we want to be able to create a narrative around them and a narrative around their spaces. I suppose that's my thing about like blingy or like show off. I kind of say, you know, if you want to look rich, don't come to us. It's not, that's, we'd rather you look clever. Yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> and then when you look at what we have to make and what they actually have to spend, <laughs> you go, well, yeah, yeah. Like, well, that's our little secret. Wow. Gosh, I, maybe it should be quiet now. Um, <laughs> have you yeah. ever had to fire a client or part ways? Yes. Yes. I have. They normally part ways with us, actually. I mean, I'm, it hasn't happened very often. And frankly, most of our clients we've been working with for years. But, um, There's some clients who I think it's really to do with that idea of taste again, I suppose. It's wanting to appear. I mean, we had one person, it was this incredible space, and they suddenly turned around and said that they wanted their kitchen to be sort of Louis the 14th. And we were, I'm sorry, excuse me, so sorry, I think we're going to go now. (laughs) I think there's a kind of moment where it's sort of like, they sort of put on the bling side of things, I suppose. But yeah, Yeah, it wasn't going to work. I mean, it all ends friendly like but um yeah sometimes it doesn't work what would you say you like best about your job you know what what's your favorite thing about going to work i love drawing i mean i really love drawing and i love joinery design i'm a joinery design nerd (laughs) i think that is what i think i'm really good at and really enjoy i love being on site i miss that a bit because now i'm a grown-up I don't get to go so much but I find that kind of team of people making something very inspiring and yeah I enjoy it do you oversee most of the projects still so in terms of if you look at what a project does you go through this I can't remember what the five stages are called now concept I don't know feasibility concept I I definitely will take a client through and present everything to every client up to the end of detailed design and then when it goes into technical I mean, it depends. I might do that too, but I, I'm, yeah, I present everything. And that's what you enjoy. Yeah. The concept side of things I will present to my team mm-hmm. and that will move forward um, from How there. many people are in the team now? We are 12, I think. We need someone else, actually, if anyone's out there. <laughs> are you having the experience of kind of having more inquiries and being busier than ever over the pandemic? 
What's the pandemic's effect on the studio? We downsized a little at the beginning because we had a lot of projects put on hold as everyone kind of felt um, nervous. We are getting a lot of inquiries, and I think you'll find this across most people, that they're not necessarily turning into much. I think people are quite reticent to press a button on things at times. I think the level that we deal is quite a big commitment for button pressing, you know, in terms of that thing. So, no, we, we're definitely busy. We're a little too busy, one might say. We've got some very exciting projects on the go. We're doing more new build houses and things now, which is quite a thing. In London or outside? <laughs> we're doing a project in Scotland, actually, oh, yeah. at the moment. In fact, we've done a lot in Scotland over lockdown. Tell us about that. We just finished a jewellery store in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Another jewellery store. Another jewellery store for Hamilton and Inches, who happen to be the crown jeweller up there. Just can't get away from the crown, which is in George Street. And that was built during lockdown. Um, So I was having to travel up and down to Edinburgh. They weren't particularly welcoming in the airport, I tell you that. But um, it was was fun to, you know, it was fun. And, And then we're looking at really exciting project in the last remaining wilderness on mainland Britain which is on the west coast of Scotland. That sounds very exciting. Yeah, our favourite clients have bought a hunting estate there and we are making a kind of wilderness hotel with some new buildings, some refurbishment of old ones, really good ecological strategy. It's, yeah, it's great. Is it a lot of new challenges? Yeah, I think I know more about boreholes now than I have ever known before (laughs) and how that you can't UV filter water that is not clear. Things like that. (laughs) The joys of my job. Yeah, but that is one of the things about Waldorworks, isn't it? That it's sort of a top to bottom service in that, you know, you do everything from boreholes to the cushions. It's the complete service. Yeah, we have a multidisciplinary team. And, you know, my background in architecture has meant I've never really been scared of architecture. And I suppose my background when I started working for an interior designer is I I became less scared of cushions. And I think there's... Or dismissive of them. Or dismissive, yeah. yeah. I I think a lot of architects are scared of making those kind of choices. Like, yeah, it should be blue, you know. I, I think because they feel, I don't know, there's a strange dissonance between those two, particularly in this country, I think, between those two professions, because they kind of fight each other all the time. Definitely. So we've always taken the attitude that we'd like to do top to bottom And when we present to you, if I was presenting to you, Elizabeth, my first presentation to you might be the house that we want to build, as well as the sofa and the chair that would go in that house. So that I believe clients get a much fuller idea about the way they might live in that or the way they might shop in that or the way they might whatever in that. We want to present you a book synopsis of what you might get and basically if that once that's signed off everything we do going back to my joinery detailing nerdery is based on that story that we have explained and had accepted by the client so for instance in austria the way that the shelf runner runs is as steeped in the idea of arts and crafts theory that we were thinking about in that house as you know what the room might look like that's the idea at least if you had to go back over and explain or summarize what you think your philosophy is as a business, as a studio, how would you kind of frame it? Well, I think we would say that we are 
certainly interested in doing something new and taking a client along that path to create something that was different to what they had seen before, but also something that had meaning and I suppose soul to a certain degree had some sense of resonance in where we are now, where that place is and who those people are. That it wasn't just cushions and air conditioning systems. It actually had some meaning in time and space. Yeah. I know I sound like Jean-Luc Picard, <laughs> but yes. It's interesting because reading up about you and talking to you in the past, it does seem like the psychology of space and how people feel when they're in it is paramount, you know, whether it be the use of color or how a design can encourage you to experience or move around in a space is a huge part of what you're thinking about. I think so. But I would also say that I think any good interior designer or interior architect should be thinking about those things and probably are. I mean, the funny thing about interior design, if that's what we're talking about, is, is actually, it's all about adjacencies as far as I, I can sort of tell. And it's quite curious because, you know, we all look at all these images on Instagram or wherever or in your magazine. And it's funny how little actually it relates to what the project is. I mean, it obviously gives a wonderful snapshot of it, but it is that. And it is about the space between things the adjacency of something to the other. It's a kind of conversation within a room that is supposed to sort of have an opinion, I suppose. And the way you move through it and the way light falls around it and the way that the space is maintained and the way that you pass through it is obviously part of the thing that we think about. Mm. You know. What's next for the studio? I mean, aside from your amazing project in Scotland, what other projects you have coming up or is your ambition to make the studio bigger and take on more work or do you want to keep it the same size and move along at this same you know i suppose you know to a certain extent i always say well we kind of do what we're told right. <laughs> you know if something comes along you go oh god i quite want to do that i think mm. like, yeah better employ some people i think about four or five years ago i was thinking you know i want to scale i want to get someone in who deals with the day-to-day -day, just sit on the concept and now i kind of realize that we probably got to about 20 people, I think, at a certain stage. And I don't think I do want that. I do think I want to be involved. I want, you know, Sasha and Andrew, who are my partners, who Sasha sort of does the interior side, and we work very closely together on that. And Andrew's the sort of technical side of the architectural. I think, you know, we've been together for, I mean, nigh on 19, 18, 19 years, and there's a sort of familial atmosphere about the place that I like. And I think that's what clients respond to as well. You get us and you get this team of people who's really batting for you, you know, and I think that can get lost at scale. Definitely. And as you say, we don't have a cookie cutter approach to what we do to people's houses. It makes it very, you know, what we do need is a kind of cookie cutter approach to our process, you know, that, that we all know what we're doing. Yeah. So it's quite nice to have a smaller team. That's really a hard part of it, isn't it? In running you know, when you go from a tiny business and if without the right systems, yeah, it's it a total up. disaster, I'm, isn't it? It's just a joke. You know, I am making it up. There's no one told me what to do or how to run a company. You know, Sasha and I are, you know, we've done super well and we're very privileged and lucky and all of those things. But it um, can be a daily struggle to, um, you know, the people management. You know, it's hard. Mm. And I think 20 years on, yes, and we've learned a lot of lessons and we know what we're doing now. Right. Have you made mistakes. I mean, I mean uh, how, uh, how long have you got? There's sort of hysterical things like where you kind of, oh my God, we've got to cut the sofa in half to get it in the, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> Those sort of get the client out of here and get a chainsaw, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, I've made mistakes. I think mostly, you know, the sort of big mistakes have been taking on work that I shouldn't have taken on. I think that is, I wish in some respects I'd, I'd had more, I, I'd had more gumption to sort of say no at points. Because it was um, too much or because it was the wrong thing for you? I think you can smell a rat at the beginning if your personality is on, if the, the person is in the room for some reason other than wanting to work. It's mm -hmm. more to do with that. I think there's been times like that where there's been a personality conflict, or, but actually not in the scheme of things, not very mm -hmm. often. I mean, I, I think we've been incredibly lucky with our clients and we've been you know, we've had to do so many diverse and sort of all over the world kind of extraordinary things that have been, of course, stressful. Mm -hmm. As the swimming pool in the Caribbean was built in the wrong place, or <laughs> what you did know, you do? You come back and I didn't do anything. It wasn't me, sir. <laughs> Honest, Gov. The team at that, you know, it's on a small island, and the pool was supposed to be centered on the house, and um, it wasn't. Oh my gosh. Then they came up with this brilliant thing where they said, so let's flood all the earth around the pool and see if we can float it in the sort of soaked earth a meter to the right. What happened? Well, I was like, listen, guys, if you can do that, I'm really up for it. I want to see whether you can do it. But you have to get the engineer to sign off on it. And the engineer wouldn't sign off on it. So they had to start over. break it up, oh my gosh. build it again. <laughs> That's not. A but fun it's part. quite something when you get a plane and then another plane and another plane. You turn up on site and you're like, um, "Excuse me, uh, <laughs> who can I speak to?" I think about there this? might be an issue uh, with the. And they're all like, "What?" <laughs> um, so there's been quite a lot of that, and you know, there are times where you have to be incredibly sort of awful. You've got this builder that you love, and he's great, but he's done something terribly wrong, and it's going to cost him a lot of money, and you have to go. Um, no. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that sort of thing. Once you find the builders that you use over and over again, is it sort of like, do you hoard that secret to yourself as much as you can? Or, you know, people talk about the trade secrets. Well, no, I think, you know, everything has to be so competitive yeah. now, um, you know, that you have to kind of, particularly at the sort of scale that we're looking at, you have to be open to lots of people. It's joiners, really, tell you the truth. I mean, there's certainly on an interior side, we have an upholsterer. We have a metal worker. We have those people who we hoard. And Sasha is very keen on that side of things, of making sure that we are covered in all those sides. And we've got some wonderful people. And then join us. We've worked with my first job, Benbow, are these people in Devon who we work with at Garrard's. And we've worked with them ever since, really. When we can, they've got so grand. There's lots of relationships that you form across the years that have become really important to the studio and, you know, just in one's life. Definitely. Well, my last question for you, Tom, is about your own home and how mm -hmm. you like to live. You know, what colours and what feeling you like to have in your own space. I have this, as I say, I bought this warehouse, which I still live in, which is full of kind of sometimes things that didn't make it onto jobs. Um, I suppose my aesthetic was formed maybe in the Portobello in 1989. I, I had that kind of, I was blown away by that kind of Buffalo sort of Memphis situation. I remember at the time, I just couldn't get my head around it. I found it sort of so, I suppose it was just the spirit of it, probably more than the actual aesthetics yeah. of it, but that kind of witty, positive modernism that wasn't based in a sort of saving of society that I think is 
patriarchal and strange mm-hmm. of of those kind of you know true modernism but i think yeah i suppose my house is full of things that make me kind of happy a lot of block mm-hmm. color a lot of things that have meaning i suppose mm-hmm. and i think that's you know the key to a beautiful house i don't care particularly in the end when i go into people's houses i love i just i just care that it reflects them and it i think that is hopefully what we try and do as well as we can at waldo is to obviously put our opinion into who they are but i really want it to be about our expression of their life really or their brand or whatever those things are perfect well thank you so much tom for chatting with us it's fascinating to hear the story behind waldo works because i know that your fan base is growing by the day and everyone loves what you do so Well, that's very sweet of you. (laughs) Well done. Thanks, Elizabeth.